Welcome to On Mic with Jordan Rich, where conversation is alive and well. We have a returning guest today. We talked with her, Susan Bregman, a while back about her New England Neon book, a glorious look at signage throughout the six-state region. Now we ask Susan to step up to the lane with her latest, called the New England Candlepin Bowling Book. Now, if you grew up in Massachusetts or any of the surrounding areas, you probably know what we're referring to. Don't worry, we'll explain exactly what candle pins are. The book is a treasure trove of rare photos, lots of trivia and history about a challenging game, much more so than the one with those bigger bowling balls. So let me line up and toss one out, hoping for at least a spare and not a spread eagle split. Not bad. All right, it's time to take in the Candlepin experience and revisit with Susan Bregman as we go on mic. Oh, gosh, it brings me right back to my youth and my bowling league and the few trophies I got for sports. Susan, thank you for doing this. It's lovely. It's fantastic. Well, thank you, Jordan. It's a pleasure <laughs> to be on. It's great to have you back. We had you a while back when you had the New England Neon book. Yes, that was my first book. That was about neon signs in New England, and that book in a roundabout way, led me to writing the book about candlepin bowling. Well, I have to ask, since I've already admitted that I'm a big candlepin guy from way back, you must have some personal history with it, right? I don't have a ton, actually. It's surprising. What I have is a love for old New England um, experiences. Yep. And when I was writing the Neon book, I... Um, encountered all kinds of bowling in Massachusetts and in New England. And I think Massachusetts might be the only state that has three kinds of bowling. It has 10 pin, of course, candle pin and duck pins. So, um, and I found signs for all three of those types of bowling and it just led me on to this new adventure. Now we'll explain what candle pins are for the people listening all over the world who have no idea what we might be talking about. But before we get there, there aren't too many left. That's the sad part. I mean, it's it's a sport that was very popular for decades and decades. And all told, how many of these exist today? When I started writing this book, I had a list about of, of about 100 active candle pin places in New England. Um, sadly, some of those have closed because of the pandemic. And I'd say maybe a few dozen of those, maybe about 40-ish, are members of the International Candlepin Bowling Association. Okay, the fact, the, that the, the fact that there's an international association is, is heartening, I'll tell you that. Well, there's Canada. Ah, Canada. God bless Canada. Uh, and may you forever reign supreme in the Candlepin lanes. So Candlepin Bowling, let's explain what it is. It actually looks like a candlepin, hence the name, but... What is it and as opposed to 10-pin or duck-pin? Well, it is a bowling game, so it's the same premise. You throw a ball at a bunch of pins. The difference is the size of the balls and the shape of the pins. So candle pins are taller than um, 10 pins. They're about 15, almost 16 inches tall, and they're skinny. They're, they're tapered a little bit at each end, but they're essentially cylindrical. So they're tall and skinny. The balls are way smaller than 10 pin balls. The balls are about, you know, the size of a grapefruit, I would say. Mm -hmm. They weigh about two and a half pounds and they fit in your hand. They don't have finger holes. And the other thing, the two other things about candle pins that make it different from the kind of bowling that most people are familiar with is that you have three turns per frame instead of two. And when you knock down a pin, it's not cleared. So you can 
use the pins that have fallen down, the wood, oh, yes. to try to knock over the pins that are still standing. Absolutely. And it all got started in the city of Worcester, you write. Absolutely. Candle pin bowling was invented in the city of Worcester in the late 1800s. The stories, you know, the details of the origin stories vary a little bit, but the gist of it is there was a guy named Justin White who owned a billiards hall and bowling place in in downtown Worcester on Pearl Street. And he wanted to find a more challenging game for his customers than the regular bowling. So he experimented. The story goes, he found some broomsticks in his closet and he tried setting them up and, you know, no one could knock those down because they were too skinny. But eventually he hit on a, um, a version of the game that used um, what are, what we know today as candle pins. They were smaller than the candle pins we know today, but um, it, it was a version of the game we know today. And then a guy named John Muncy, Jack Muncy, entered the picture a few years later, and the two of them perfected the game, publicized the game, promoted the game, and um, Jack Muncy went on to be one of the founders of the National Candlepin and Duckpin Congress, which established the rules for the game in about 1906. Right, and it is a much more challenging game than traditional 10 pins because, I mean, you can get a strike and a strike and a strike and a strike. It's very difficult Although someone's done it once, I think, uh, gotten mostly strikes and a couple of spares to get an amazing score. You're right. But um, what's interesting is the original pins were were rather fragile. <laughs> you keep hitting them with the ball. I, the element of plastic or whatever you want to call it, coating these pins must have made a big difference. Yeah. So the original pins were made of wood. And, of course, they just splintered over time because they kept getting hit. And they kept flying around. And you know. <laughs> um, then they started. Ex- and, and what would happen is then they would start wobbling. So the owners of the alleys would, would sand off the bottom to make them sit straight again. And then after a while, you're playing with pins of different sizes, which wasn't, <laughs> wasn't great. Right. Um, but over time, they experimented. The uh, manufacturers experimented with different kinds of plastic coating. But it wasn't until... I forget what year, but um, it was until fairly recently that um, a company in in Maine, in um, um, Garland Manufacturing, in Seiko, Maine, um, Saco, Seiko, Saco, um, whatever. <laughs> Saco. They'll answer to anything. It's okay. <laughs> exactly. Um, they they came up with a a resin and a um, a patented way of creating the candle pin the candle pins. And now, instead of lasting just, you know, a few months, now they last for years. They might be, in my personal history, the most hated inanimate objects on the planet when they don't fall the way they're supposed to. See, what I love about candlepin bowling, for those who've never done it, you can throw a perfect ball right down the middle and think, this is it. I've got a strike or at least nine pins. And you just punch out the two middle pins. And I it, know. they're all kinds. It is, but it's also a game of skill, and it's a game of tact and 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 strategy. And I mentioned the fella. His name, I think, is Semb. S e m b. I think his name is. Yes, who, Ralph. Ralph Semb. And he scored a two forty five, which is amazing because in candle pins, you know, you're not likely to get a strike every time. He got seven in a row and three spares. Wow, that's amazing. And um, only one person has tied the record. 
since. But basically, that 245 stands as the highest recorded, sanctioned candle pin score in the game. When I broke 100 in one string, I was excited. You know, that was a big moment when I got three figures. Uh, there's so many aspects to this that we'll, we'll get into, but I've got to jump ahead a little bit. And there's a picture of a rather well-known athlete named Babe Ruth holding a couple of uh, candle pin bowling balls, looking like he's about to get up to the lane because he's wearing the shoes. And speculation is he would have done this because he lived in what, Sudbury? He lived in the area? He lived in Sudbury for years and I think other places before that. Um, it, it It's speculative because there are, there are people who are certain that he was a duck pin bowler and no one really knows for absolute sure. I've seen a lot of pictures of Babe Ruth and you always see him holding one of those small balls, but you never see where he's bowling. So you can't tell what the pins look like. Um, but he's from Baltimore. Right. And Baltimore is where duck pins were supposedly invented. So you could argue either way. And and my theory is, I mean, Babe Ruth loved bowling. He just loved bowling. And after he retired from baseball, especially. And I think he just bowled whatever. I think he bowled wherever and whatever game he could find. Well, I but, love I um, love the certainly picture. Certainly, he liked the small ball games. Yeah, I, I love the picture. And speaking of pictures, that's what this book is all about: incredible gathering of photos, both black and white and in color. And much like the sign book, the neon book, you have a good collection of bowling uh, facility signs. They are really colorful and really dynamic, aren't they? They are. You know, it's funny because you look at a lot of these bowling alleys. And from the outside, the buildings are pretty nondescript, but a lot of them have these fabulous signs. Um, the one in Danvers, um, Sunnyside Bolidrome, mm-hmm. yeah. has a gorgeous neon sign, a roof-mounted neon sign. Um, the one in Cape Ann, Cape, Cape, um, Cape Ann Lanes in Gloucester, mm-hmm. also has a beautiful big neon sign that says bowl. My recollection in the 60s when I first started to bowl was, and you've got some great pictures of alleys in that era, lots of, uh, I call it Jetson's family plastic. <laughs> it looked like like a pseudo spaceship or something. And, you know, everything was bright colors, neon colors. That was a look back then, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, and certainly some of the places that are still open are just recently closed. You could be walking into the 60s. Very Certainly right. that was the case of Colonial Bowl with the, you know, the pink and the aqua color scheme. Um, Wakefield Bolodrome in Wakefield um, also is like is like a time capsule. Interesting. And it, it's really kind of fabulous. We're talking with Susan Bregman, the author of and the gathering of images of modern America in a book called New England Candlepin Bowling. And uh, the foreword is by our mutual friend, Mike Morin. He's a dear friend, radio guy who wrote a little book about uh, Candlepin uh, on broadcast Candlepin uh, uh, schemes. And, of course, you've got news in there about, what, the number one show on local television for a couple of decades, the Candlepin Bowling Show? The Candlepin Bowling Show on Channel 5 with Don Gillis. It ran for 38 years. Must see TV on Saturdays. Absolutely. Absolutely. And many times it out it out um, performed the local sports um, teams. That's great. That's so great. 
uh, you mentioned the pins. Uh, we talked about that, the fact that they became uh, laminated to a certain extent and were, were long-lasting. But there were other big changes, one of which was the automatic pin setting. Now, before that, what happened? How did the pins wind up back where they should be? <laughs> there were pin boys. Um, so from the earliest days of the game, people, young men usually, had to reset the pins and also return the balls. There were no automatic ball returns either. Mm -hmm. um, and then um, I, I have a picture in the book, I'm sure you saw. Um, around the turn of the century, the kids who, these were kids, these were like 10 and 11 year old boys who were resetting the pins and they were working till midnight. And um, so they turned up in some of the efforts to outlaw or um, better manage um, child labor. Mm. So I have a picture there of from Lewis Hine, the um, great social photographer who um, photographed a lot of like, you know, young children working in, in textile mills, but he also photographed young boys working in um, bowling alleys. Um, so eventually kids as young as 10 or 11 could no longer do it, but you know, teenage boys did it and they reset the pins well into the, well into the 1950s and sometimes into the 60s. My father, who, God bless him, is in his early 90s, tells the story that he did it. He was uh, yeah. hired at, at, as a teenager. And, you know, for those days to get a job uh, either in a supermarket or in a bowling alley, that was the way to do it. That was the way to get get some spending money. Yeah, it was a great job. It's a hard job because um, you're 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 running around, you're resetting the pins, you're dodging balls, you're dodging flying pins. Um, people get injured. And, um, but it's a great, it was a great, um, a great job. Right. And a lot of, a lot of men in their eighties and nineties now still remember doing it. What's neat about candlepin bowling. And I think the theme throughout is it's people of all stripes and ages and sexes can play. Um, because the balls were easy to handle and the game moved in a, at a different pace, that's really been the hallmark, at least it was when it was very popular. Would you agree? I would agree. I mean, that's certainly one of the selling points to this day of candlepin bowling, that people of all ages can play. And, um, you know, kids can, can hold the ball. Old people can easily roll the ball when they maybe couldn't roll it, a, you know, 15-pound 10-pin ball. Um, and that's certainly part of its appeal. I remember the first time I went to a bowling alley and the idea of putting on somebody else's shoes was <laughs> was really strange. I was about eight years old. I have to change my shoes? I mean, all of these traditions, the shoes, uh, the score sheets that uh, you darkened those spares, all that kind of stuff is so much a part of Americana and New England in this case. Uh, what else did you uncover? Anything surprising that you uncovered in your research? Well, you know, we were talking about pin setters a minute ago. One of the interesting things is that a company called Bolmore, which was in Littleton, Massachusetts, um, they became the major manufacturer of candle pin setting equipment. And they debuted their um, prototypes at Whalum Park, the now defunct amusement park in um, Lunenburg, Massachusetts. Interesting, too, how many bowling alleys also had billiards available. It seemed to go hand in hand, the pool yeah. tables and the bowling alleys, <laughs> right? Yeah, and I think that's why in the beginning, the early, you know, now we think of bowling as a family game. But 
in the early days of the game, it was not considered a family game. There was smoking, there was billiards, there was bowling, there was gambling, there was swearing. I don't know what yeah. there was, but um, it was not considered a wholesome environment. And women, women didn't start bowling um, in the early days of the game. And I've seen pictures of there used to be like a curtain in some of these old school bowling lanes to provide privacy when women were bowling. <laughs> Sounds like an Orthodox Jewish tradition at that point. I know. The other thing is bowling in, in Massachusetts, in New England, for years, for decades, actually, was was all about the league that you were in, whether it was a work-related group or a school-related group. And leagues kept these bowling alleys busy, didn't they, uh, during those periods? Yeah, absolutely. Um, certainly when, when factories were active and in the 40s, 50s and into the 60s, um, that's that's who was at bowling alleys. Um, these leagues, um, I have some pictures in the book of some leagues in Worcester. One was from an insurance company and one was from a restaurant. And really it was it was people from all all walks of life were bowling. And um, that the the loss of manufacturing in New England, I think, helped contribute to some of the demise we're seeing in bowling right now. Now, I've been a few times to uh, there's a, a bowling alley called King's. They've got a couple of locations and it's really more of an entertainment center. And, uh, you know, they serve alcohol and the, there's, there's lights and computers and you don't have to keep score and it, it, all well and good. But it doesn't for me, have the same magic because I'm throwing these big monster Fred Flintstone boulders and knocking down eight or nine pins, and that's not good enough. (laughs) (laughs) Do you go bowling much, uh, 10 pin? Not. Um, To be perfectly honest, I don't think I've rolled 10 pins since I was a kid. And I didn't roll my first string until I was about 55, so... (laughs) <laughs> I mean, it's it's weird when you grow. So you grew up in New York. I grew up in New York. I came here after college. Did you have any inkling that there was a, such a thing as candlepin bowling when you were a kid? No idea. And my brother, who still lives in New York, had no idea when I told him I was writing this book. He had never heard of candlepin bowling. That's so, so cool. So um, it, it, it's a regional thing. And it's um, an active game in Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and Maine, and also in Nova Scotia and New Brunswick. So that's the international element. And you have to wonder, uh, maybe you know the answer to this, why it worked its way up there, how it worked its way up there, and why it didn't catch on elsewhere. Or uh, any thoughts on that? You know, there, there's... I can see how it caught on in New England because it started in Worcester and just kind of spread. So that that makes sense to me. And it did seem to work its way up the eastern seaboard. In terms of why it hasn't spread, there's different theories, but a lot of them just are based on the availability of the equipment. Um, the Bullmore Company's out of business. Um, there's only one company that's manufacturing candle pin pin setters right now, to the best of my knowledge. Only one company is making the balls and only one company is making the pins. So I think it's partly an economic issue as well. Everything old is new again. And I was telling you before we started taping that I've been to the Brighton Bowl. Brighton is uh, part of the city of Boston. And it that's a throwback. And this was before the pandemic. So I hope they come back. But it was 
the the lanes look like they're from the 40s and they do have automatic pins and they have great pizza and I thought and the kids loved it we brought some little ones with us and they absolutely loved it so I hope and pray that we uh, we see these remaining ones healthy and maybe more will spring up I agree completely and and the Brighton Bowl is part of um this um, restaurant company, this flatbread restaurant company. And um, I love Brighton Bowl. And I, I think they did a beautiful job of creating a modern bowling alley that respects the past. Hmm. And and I, I think they did a great job. Um, there's also um, in, in Somerville and Davis Square, Sacco's, um, Sacos, yeah. Sacos. Um, that was, you know, again, an old school bowling alley, probably from the 30s. And now it's a combination flatbread and bowling alley. Excellent. Um, but the people, the Brighton, the Brighton Bowl people, they're opening a new one in Worcester. Excellent. That's great news. Yeah. Um, much like the return of the drive in, which is happening all over the world and certainly all over the country, maybe we'll see a, a flourishing candlepin bowling industry again. I certainly hope so. Your book will go a long way to whetting the appetite uh, for <laughs> sure. Uh, by the way, let's mention your website, Red Nickel, just the way it sounds like a coin, rednickel.com. And people will find this book and your other works there, I assume. Yes, both books are there. My blog is there and my photo portfolio is there. So one-stop shopping. Can you give us a little hint as to what you're working on? I am trying to think about what my next book is going to be, but I don't know yet. I have some ideas in my head, but it's too early to talk about them. I'm sure I'll hear from you and I'm sure we'll have you back because your stuff is, I don't want to just say it's pop culture. It's its history, it's culture, it's its tradition. And, and most of all, it's fun. So thank you so much. It is fun. Thank you so much, Susan. It's great to see you. I'll see you on the lanes. Okay, Jordan. Thank you. Thank you to Susan Bregman for another trip down memory lane, or at least in this case, the Candlepin Bowling Lane. Do check out the New England Candlepin Bowling Book. And thanks for checking out this podcast. You can find out more about me at jordanrich.com. And join us again next time when we'll keep the conversation alive. Until then, be well so you can do good. Take care.